and this is the art of less doing. I'm going to teach you how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life, including your health, in order to be more effective. I want you to stress less, free up as much time as possible, and do the things you want to do. It's episode 154 of the Less Doing Podcast. Today I speak with Alex Epstein of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Now, whether or not you agree with Alex's hypothesis, it's a very interesting book, and Alex is a very smart guy, and gives some really interesting arguments about efficiency of fossil fuels and all sorts of stuff. And in addition, since we've spoken, Alex seems to be the most voracious uh, student or or uh, knowledge seeker I've ever met. Um, he's basically devoured all of the less doing content in a matter of a couple of weeks and implemented a lot of it. So uh, thank you for that, Alex, because he's been keeping me updated. So I want to share a bunch of links with you guys tonight. Uh, the first one is called Cook Bright, and this is an app for Android. Now, I know I don't usually share Android apps, but it is an Android app. And it's really cool. It it does a lot of stuff that is not new, but it does one thing that I've thought about a long time ago that I was surprised no one did it. Uh, so basically, this is an app to help you figure out what you should make for dinner based on what you have and what you don't. So uh, it'll make recipe recommendations. That's pretty straightforward. It, it'll tell you based on what you have in your pantry, what you can make, and what exactly you should shop for for that night. But this is the cool part. How does it know what you have in your pantry? You simply scan the receipt from the grocery store, and from that, it will automatically track the purchases that you have at your home. So each time that you go to create a meal, it's going to know what you have and what you need just from scanning your receipt. That's really cool. Um, the next thing I want to tell you about is a, a relatively new field of study called neurocardiology. So this is the study of the neurophysical, sorry, neurophysiological neurological and neuroanatomical aspects of cardiology, including the neurological origins of cardiac disorders. So basically the effect that stress has on your heart. Um, and the reason that I found this so interesting was that for the longest time, the gut has been called the second brain because of all the neurotransmitters present there. And now they're saying that the heart is the third brain. So first of all, that's fascinating. And it's interesting, of course, to see what effect stress has on your overall health and certain acute conditions. But it also makes me think about people getting heart transplants and what that actually can do to your personality, your mood, your tastes, if you're getting someone else's heart. Uh, the next one, this is an article in uh, the Wall Street Journal. says that handwriting isn't dead. Smart pens and styluses are saving it. And the reason I wanted to share this is because I, I contrary to what a lot of people might think, like I'm, I'm fairly not anti-technology, but I do try to limit technology when I really don't think I need it. And I always say that technology sort of amplifies any habits you have, whether they're good habits or bad habits, technology is going to simply amplify those. So I think that handwriting is really important. My handwriting is terrible, and it always has been, probably because I've been using a computer since fifth grade. But as much as I can... I use I, I write by hand. Uh, so when I travel, I never take my laptop. It's just my iPhone, but I'll write by hand on the plane. I'll take notes, and then I'll, I'll categorize those after. I'll take a picture and have fancy hands transcribe it for me. Uh, but what they're saying is that people who handwrite 
reframe the content and understand it better. So when you do that on the computer, you don't get that benefit. There's actually a study in 2014 called The Pen is Mightier Than the Keyboard that was done by Pam Mueller. So uh, there is a benefit to writing by hand. Now, however, you can hybridize that, of course, and get things uh, that you can get smart pens like the LiveScribe, for instance, and then write, and it'll go right into your Evernote, for example. So that actually does accomplish both effects. Pretty cool stuff. Good to know. Sometimes going old school is better for your brain. Uh, now, there's an article over at examine.com about three science-based steps to curbing your appetite. So the first one is fiber and volume of food. And they're saying that you can take a supplement like Metamucil, which is fiber. That's really just going to create bulk. Um, that one I don't necessarily recommend. Stress relief is a good way to curb your appetite since emotional eating is pretty common, something I have certainly experienced and I'm sure many people listening have experienced that as well. Uh, and you can take, they recommend you can take supplements to help manage that stress like rhodiola rosea, uh, rosea uh, panax ginseng, and ashwagandha. Uh, and then the other one is that you can basically increase adrenaline. So you could drink coffee, for example, which is going to cause a suppression of appetite. Uh, at low levels, of course. So just something to keep in mind if you feel like you're just hungry all the time and need to curb your appetite. I experience this sometimes where even on the high-fat diet that I tend to eat, I could eat a huge meal and 15 minutes later I'll be hungry again. It's just it's just because I burn so many calories. Um, so the next one is, uh, this is another text-based service called Text Doug. And it's a funny name, but you can basically get financial advice from some random guy named Doug. So this is kind of a funny one, I have to say. But uh, if you want to ask what the hottest tech stocks are in their opinion or what is a 5013C or what is a 401K or whatever, you can text Doug and get your financial questions answered. It's really funny. This whole invisible UX thing is just amazing to me. Uh, there was an article in Time Magazine that I, I love this. It's called Here's Why We Have a Chin. Okay, so this is looking at the evolutional, evolutionary basis for why we have chins. And what they basically came up with is that we didn't grow chins, but rather our face, faces receded around the bone and the chin just sort of stayed there. So, yeah, the chin basically doesn't serve any biomechanical purpose, but people do find that, uh, you know, especially with men, that a strong chin is an important thing. And um, so... Yeah, that's that's why we have a chin, it seems like. Hmm. Gotta love evolution. The next one is, a, this is a great site. It's called Good, Good uh, Magazine, basically. And th But I, this article is really funny. It's called When Mindfulness Goes Wrong. Now, I am a big fan of mindfulness meditation. I've talked about it a lot. I currently meditate daily with Mary Meckley's Daily Meditation Podcast. And uh, what this is basically saying, though, is that meditation basically cultivates a type of witness awareness. So that's where you're witnessing your thoughts, but you're not your thoughts. And what they're saying is that that can exacerbate certain kinds of dissociative and depersonalization disorders. So, okay, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, if not that those illnesses are not real, but if you have multiple personality disorder, which is really now called dissociative identity disorder, maybe meditation is not your number one priority. But basically what they're saying is that this can actually worsen those kinds of things. So that's a pretty specific uh, case, I would say, that I don't think makes for a very good general argument. And I would say that generally speaking, meditation is very good for you. So there you go. Um, okay, so 
that's it for tonight. The interview, again, is with Alex Epstein. I, I think that he's got a really interesting point of view, and it's very well-researched, so check it out, and I will talk to you all next time. And now for Feature Interview. So now I'm speaking with Alex Epstein, who is the author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. So, uh, Alex, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, my pleasure. So uh, let's talk about your background a little bit. How do you get interested in this particular topic? Uh, I think there are really two distinct stages of it. So one is, is how I came to my basic philosophy of how we think about the planet, and then two is how I became interested in fossil fuels in particular. So in terms of how we think about the planet, we're taught from a very young age that the way we should think about the planet is as something to save from human beings. <laughs> Environmentally, our ideal should be let's minimize our impact. That's why I'm in a hotel room right now and there's greens, you know, be green, don't use resources, all, all over the place. And when I was 18 and started studying philosophy, I realized that's not the only view. There's a view that was held for a long time, which to me makes much more sense to say the least, which is that, no, our perspective should be the planet is something that we improve for human beings. So we don't think about minimizing our impact. We think about maximizing our well-being, and we want to minimize negative impacts. But, but maximizing our well-being means changing the planet in many, many ways, including ways that will inevitably involve risks and side effects uh, of their own. So that, that perspective I had from a, from a very young age, I you know, fell in love with philosophy. And then about nine years later, when I was 26, 27, uh, I became interested in energy, and I realized, that, and this relates actually to the idea of less doing, there's this one industry that empowers us to use machines to do pretty much everything in our lives. So the average American has the equivalent of 96 machine servants operating for him at all times, and just like each American needs food, so those machine servants need food. And so energy is the food of machines. And we can only have those machine servants and we can only make progress by getting more if we have the most resource efficient forms of energy, the ones that deliver the most for the least, again, related to some of the themes of, of your work. And what we find is that fossil fuel energy is vastly more resource efficient than other forms of energy. And thus, when we're considering any of its downsides, we need to realize that because for many people, to not be able to use fossil fuels means means to die of lack of energy or or to suffer for lack of energy. So that's that's a good way to frame it, I think. And obviously, it's very easy for somebody to be protesting fossil fuels while they're wearing clothes and you know shoes with rubber soles and all sorts of stuff and and food that they've eaten on their way to that protest and not really understand the sort of whole life cycle of it. And and part of the reason that I wanted to have you on here and as it relates to less doing as well is that there there is often in in a lot of stuff that I do as well there's a trade-off between efficiency and in some cases like a dehumanization or over like mechanization or you might be getting rid of jobs that people need there, there's always this thing about resource allocation when you're talking about being more efficient right so fossil fuels i feel like that's a that's a, a very big thing that comes up and people just take it for granted yeah and i think the, the concept of efficiency is one that is is not defined in most contexts and and thus not used well at all. So there's 
and this relates to the whole issue of the moral case. Why do I call it the moral case? And the reason is, is because I believe that we have not clearly identified what moral measure or moral standard we're using. I mentioned these opposing standards of maximizing human well-being and minimizing human impact. And I believe that most of the discussion of fossil fuels is on the implicit premise of minimizing human impact, even though if we take that to its logical conclusion, it means that we shouldn't industrialize and ultimately we shouldn't exist. But that the idea of minimizing human impact, the idea that any impact we have is, is a disaster, must lead to bad consequences, I think the drastic exaggeration of any negative climate impact, these kinds of things, show that we're on the premise of, of minimizing impact as this, as this uh, dogma, and it comes up with efficiency. So, for instance, you'll hear something like, the internal combustion engine is super inefficient. Well, by what standard? You can say that in terms of the technical aspect, technical efficiency, only 25% of the theoretical potential of the gasoline is, is put to the wheels. Okay, but ultimately what matters is what's the cost of the resources and what's the benefit of the resources. So it turns out that to use a gasoline-powered car is the most efficient way to move a human being. And if you use a technically more efficient battery-powered car, which has its own efficiencies on different ends, that costs a lot more money because the resources involved in building that and building the battery and replacing the battery, those are, are much those are, are uh, much more extensive and, and expensive. And these kinds of things matter a lot because if you can't afford energy or you can't afford anything else, you don't have, have access to it. So we're often taught of efficiency in, in very, there's many, many other examples. One other quick one is efficiency is equated with deficiency. So people say, oh, I want to be more efficient. And that equates to that'll mean using less energy. No, in fact, over time, we've become much more technically efficient and we use much more energy in many, in many ways for the same reason because once the computer can use energy, uh, you know, once the computer becomes cheaper, including all the energy needed to make it, you can mass deploy it, whereas when only the rich can afford it, it'll use a lot of energy per unit, but there'll be very few units. So anyway, there's tons of instances of efficiency and, and it needs to be defined by a clear standard and mine is, human well-being. Sure. And, and that's, that's a, obviously makes sense in terms of looking at a moral case as well. The, the, the funny thing, too, for me about looking at fossil fuels and, and oil uh, particularly is that it, I have to figure out how to form this as the right thought, but basically there was something I saw on Vice News the other day, and it was talking about uh, a particular African country that is really known for uh, illegal uh, refining of oil. But the thing that I thought so, and, and it's and it's doing really bad things for the environment and the water there and stuff. But the thing that and it's obviously illegal. But the thing that I found so interesting about it was that there's people with very little skills that are able to steal crude crude oil and turn it into usable fuel with very little equipment. And it, that that to me is almost kind of beautiful in itself. That there's a resource that you really don't need a lot of skill or or billions of dollars necessarily to process in something that can be used to power farm equipment or a car. Yeah, it, it, this goes to a, a point I make in the book about the efficiency of different forms of energy, which is that if you look at the ones that are truly cheap, plentiful, and reliable, and there are really only three so far, uh, fossil fuel energy, nuclear energy, and hydroelectric, and, and the latter two can't scale quite as well, particularly hydro, because it's limited by, by location, you know, where, where you have the right kind of water flow. Um, but they all have three things in common. They're naturally concentrated, 
they're naturally plentiful and they're naturally stored. So when you're talking about it, it doesn't take that much to get the oil, you know, to turn the crude oil, which in its its raw form is crude. It's it's essentially useless, um, often a nuisance to people. You can you can turn that fairly efficiently into something incredibly useful, be it diesel fuel for a tractor or gasoline for a car or kerosene as jet fuel for a plane or or petrochemical to make all kinds of plastic things. And it's because nature has compressed the, the energy and stored it for us. And thus, what we need to do is just release the energy. This is even more so true for, um, for nuclear, although the nuclear process is you know, more technologically involved. But, but the nucleus of an atom is held together by these unbelievably powerful forces, and we just have to release them. Whereas if you look at something like solar and wind, you're, doing, you're heading in the opposite direction. You're taking something that's naturally very diluted and that's naturally intermittent. It comes in unreliably. And then you're trying to concentrate it and store it on your own, which then takes massive amounts of resources. So you're trying to do what nature already did uh, with the other ones. And that is why it's just a massive pain to do it and, and particularly to try to make it reliable because you have to invent a whole kind of storage system that doesn't exist and then build that out instead of using natural storage systems. Sure, of course. And, and But so let's, let's talk about not necessarily downsides, but sort of a negative for a second here. And you look at like things like natural disasters—not natural, sorry—but uh, like disasters, like oil spills and things like that. And and to me, that's that's not. I always found this weird, and it's probably people might get upset at this, but it, it, that to me is not really part of the conversation because that, like, an oil spill is a matter of a safety measure or mechanical things or a technological issue that's not been put in place. That that's not. That's not because it's fossil fuel. You know what I mean? Well, like, like I mean, like, you, a, like an oil tanker, for for instance, like having an accident and spilling oil, like that. That's not. That's not just because it's fossil fuel that that's happening. Like that. That's there. There's other inefficiencies or things that are in the system that are not working. That that's true. But what you find with things that are viewed as morally bad is that everything that goes wrong with them is piled on as a justification for why they're bad. So you're absolutely right that in terms of the, the phenomenon of t taking a raw material that's hazardous, and most raw materials are hazardous in one way or another, and then putting it in a, it, it accidentally putting it in a place where you don't want it, uh, this happens in every kind of industrial process. I mean, think about like a, a steel plant, or uh, I, in the in the moral case for fossil fuels, I use the example of a uh, of a mine for rare earth metals, where those are some of the raw materials for wind turbines. And for various reasons, that's a much more dangerous process because you're um, you know you're dealing with high, highly radioactive materials. There's a lot more separation involved, a lot more chemical compounds you need to apply. But people ignore that because they think that the wind energy is essentially uh, virtuous. So I think your, your analysis is correct, uh, but, but there's a reason why. People think it's something that's bad already, and so just every, everything is, is confirmation bias of that, so to speak. Okay, so well then, what you know? What is your response to people bringing up global warming as, a, as an issue with fossil fuels? So the first thing is just how to think about it is, and this goes back to the issue of the, the moral standard of maximizing human well-being. So if we're on the, we want to focus on maximizing human well-being. With any phenomenon, any product, any technology, we want to look very carefully at both positive and negative because to not look at either can, can be fatal. So with uh, climate 
climate change, I think it's better called climate impact, or I think global warming is, is definitely more accurate than, than climate change. Since that, that's the essence of what's supposed to be happening. You just have to look at it as, okay, this is a, this is a potential side effect and a potentially negative side effect, but it could even be a potentially positive side effect. And let's, let's look at that very carefully. What's the evidence about it? And how does that compare to the positives of uh, fossil fuel use in general, but also to the climate-related positives? We tend not to value energy in as nearly as many ways as it deserves to be valued, but on just a common sense level, you think about the difference between a high energy country and a low energy country in dealing with climate. It's it's life and death. In the seventies, you have uh, the Bay of Bengal, what's now Bangladesh. Three hundred thousand people die in a storm that might have killed three thousand in the U.S. because nature doesn't give us a safe climate that we make dangerous. It gives us a really dangerous climate that we need to make safe. And a big part of that is having affordable energy to build a durable civilization. So these are the parameters of how to look at it. And then, then within that, you have to fill in, you know, fill in the specifics. And one point I make in the book is that you need to uh, use experts the right way. You really need to make sure that experts act as advisors, not authorities, which means they give you very clear explanations of why they believe what they believe, how much, how well they know it, particularly whenever you deal with predictions, which are you know very hard to do, in comp- especially in complex systems. And when you take this kind of methodological approach, what I think you find, and, and I tried to give my best analysis and look, is that there is a greenhouse effect, but it, it's what's called a logarithmic effect. Over time, it's, it's a diminishing effect. And so far, what we've had is very mild warming that is, you know, of a level that historically was considered very desirable. And, and we've also had an enormous amount of plant growth increase, which isn't even discussed at all. And this is part of the not looking at the big picture, the fact that people ignore benefits. And uh, the, the, at the same time, the people who are predicting disaster now have been predicting it for, for 30 or 40 years, and the models that they've used that are that, to test their theory have failed, and they haven't really acknowledged that. So they're not acting as proper experts, and people are really exaggerating any threat because there's this belief that it's wrong for us to impact climate at all. And, and if that's true, then we shouldn't build cities because cities impact your local climate much more than global warming affects the global climate. Yeah, that's a, and that's... That's a good point. It's like people seem to draw the line at very arbitrary places. Yeah, uh, but I mean, arbitrary, I think there's two drivers. One is the moral standard of non-impact, and then the other is just what you're used to versus what you're not used to. Uh, this and a, a modern example of this is, is fracking in, in oil and gas drilling, which is just, uh, you know, it, things can go wrong with fracking, but it's just a particular component of the whole process of getting this oil or gas from rocks. And it's definitely one of the least dangerous components of the process, particularly to groundwater, since it exists so far away from groundwater. But because it's new, it's easy to cash in on people's prejudices toward industry in general and say, oh my gosh, fracking is, is bad. Whereas if you were to take the part of the process that was scary, it would be drilling near the groundwater, which is very near the surface, not 5,000 feet below the surface. So it's those, those dynamics of the anti-impact prejudice and then the, fa- the fear of, of the new. Right, sure. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the Center for Industrial Progress. Sure. Uh, so the Center for Industrial Progress and this, this goes to the theme I've been stressing the whole time of, of improving the planet for human beings, not saving the planet from human beings, uh, was 
founded to offer a positive ideal to the green movement, which I, I think is ultimately the anti-human movement, anti-humanist <laughs> movement. And, and so it's really designed to bring humanist philosophy to all of these industrial environmental issues. And what I found in, in becoming enthusiastic about these issues and passionate about these issues was that people on, quote, my side, whether it was think tanks or, or companies, they were all incredibly defensive and, and really didn't say anything positive. And to me, I think it's amazing that you can take a rock underground and figure out a way to use it to charge your iPhone. And so I, I have that kind of technological enthusiasm about all forms of industrial technology, not just digital uh, technology. And uh, what I'm doing in fossil fuels, I, I fully intend to do more completely for nuclear and then many other industries, including, uh, you know, in, in nutrition, agriculture, not nutrition so much, but in agriculture, in, in chemicals, and in all of these fields, what you find is that there's this bias against impact, which clouds thinking. So I know, I know you're very interested in food, and I don't even know your views on this, but with the whole GMO controversy, there's this, they're drawing the line at are humans impacting things is the wrong line to draw. It could be that some things called GMO are inferior. I, I don't know all the details, but I know that that's the wrong line to draw. What you want is to have a standard of value that says, let's have the healthiest food for human beings, period. And if it's made in a lab or if it's made 5,000 feet underground or it's made on Mars, I don't really care. That's, and that, I think that's great. It's nice it's good to have that sort of goal in mind and then seeing what, what gets to that goal. So, okay. So the, the last question that I always like to ask on these interviews, Alex is, and you can interpret this however you like, but what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective in life In anything in life, business, whatever you think makes the most sense. That is not an easy question. I know. <laughs> and, and, and we did not do a pre-interview. So, I'll take one. I'll take one right now, and then I will hopefully think of the others as I'm answering the one. But okay. the, the one is the one is the the thing that is so simple, yet never runs out of new applications and new new instances of realizing that one has boneheadedly ignored it, which is just always having a purpose in mind and always being able to ask the question, "What is my purpose?" And 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 always asking and always having an answer, always seeking an answer. So in this context, when somebody says that you're talking about, quote, climate change, and you ask, okay, what is our purpose here? That will immediately save you years of confusion because you'll have to answer that. And if you're a humanist or inclined toward humanism, you'll say, okay, well, I want to find the answer to this that's best for human life, which means I need to look at all the positives and negatives. And with, with this one, because we don't think of it in terms of our purpose, what we do is the equivalent of here's, here's what we do with with climate applied to vaccines. So it would be as if there are a million books written about negative vaccine side effects only. And then you hold international, there's an international bodies, international conferences, and people come up to you and say, hey, Ari, do you believe in negative side effects of vaccines? Oh, you're a vaccine denier? You're a negative side effect denier? What's wrong with you? You don't, blah, 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 blah. You say, well, wait, wait a second. Don't, isn't it, and then what would everyone conclude? They conclude, well, vaccines are bad because they all have negative sides. And someone would say, but wait, didn't vaccines save my life? Isn't that relevant to the discussion? So there's no such issue as climate change, uh, except just pure meteorologically. The issue is fossil fuels and climate change is one potential side effect to explore. So that's just an example of if you know your purpose, uh, you're, 
you're clear. Let's see. I mean, you're, you and I happen to be very, I don't think you know this about me, but I'm extremely interested in the category of issues that you are interested in and talk about. And I like, I like your work a lot. Um, Thank you. I don't know if I have anything to add, but I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I think is, is profoundly useful to me, which is just that, uh, and this is just a life thing, but that you can't upgrade the basic structure of your life too much. And that I think structure is profoundly determinant of success. I'll just give you an, an easy example of this. I am very hard on myself about, as an absolute, doing a couple of, th- every, architecting my day, doing setting conditions that will guarantee that everything is more successful. So, for example, the beginning of the day when I'm at home, I go to Laguna Beach in the morning, like no matter what, cold water, because my altitude just increases. So if I know if every day I go into that water, my thinking will be better, and particularly I'll think purposefully. I go to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu basically every night uh, when I'm home. I try to go on the road, which is a little harder, because I know that every time after that, I'll be happier, I'll feel better. And I've started to prioritize the structure over the content of the day. So if, I, if I, my work goes over, it's too bad for the work, I mean, unless it's a true emergency. And what I find is that makes the rest of the day more focused. But anything, I got a lot of this from Evan Pagan, but anything you can find that you can insert in the structure of your life uh, I mean, make that an absolute, and what you'll find is that your altitude will increase. And the altitude is really what matters, because most of what determines the course of your life is the quality of your strategic decision-making about everything. And one strategic insight can be a million-dollar insight. And I just went to the pool this morning, because I'm in Houston, there's no Laguna Beach, but I just had this killer insight about fossil fuels and, and about technology and about my perspective on it that I would not have had. But before that, I felt, I don't really need to go to the pool today. But once yeah. you know it, incorporate the structure. So that's, that's, that's two, but that, that's long enough. Yeah, no, I agree. Actually, those are great. Those are really great. And thank you for sharing those. And thank you for your perspective. Um, so just tell people where they can find out more about you, the center, or the book. Um, easiest place is industrialprogress.com industrialprogress.com um, and my name is Alex Epstein so you can EPSTEA and so all the usual Facebook uh, Twitter that sort of thing I'm fairly fairly easy to reach uh, and, and we'll have it all in the show notes too so uh, Alex thank you very much for that that perspective and that, inf- that very informed view uh, so really appreciate it alright my pleasure hello everyone thanks for listening to the Less Doing Podcast If you want to find out more information of the show, we would love to hear from you. You can go to lessdoing.com where you can look at Ari's blog, see the show notes for this episode, and also look at all the other episodes before this. If you want to send us a voicemail, we would love to hear from you and we'll play it on the show. You go to lessdoing.com, click on contact, and look on the right side of the page where you'll see a, a send voicemail button. Click on that and go ahead and record an audio message for us. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. Ari's Twitter handle is at Ari Mizell, and mine is at Felix Bird. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. See you next time.